0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time
1: to live. I have two choices here because my physicians are telling me they can't do anything for me. Either I'm gonna do something or I'm just gonna quit. I decided to get well. I decided no matter what, I'm going to get better. You know, anybody can set goals. Anybody can put a plan together, but you have to execute. We are so powerful to affect change in our lives. If we get clear on what we want, and then we get clear on some action steps to get there, you will be closer than you know before you know it. If I can do my work to the best of my ability and get more people in our world today feeling good, I think that we can really see a big shift and how we all relate to each other and really work together for a world that works for all of us. All of us. us.
0: What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd. Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features author and podcaster, Sean Stevenson. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Sean Model. I wanted to have Sean on the show because he is the best on the planet in the field of sleep. In fact, he wrote the book on it. His book is called Sleep Smarter, but he's not only an expert in the field of sleep, he's also one of the top podcasters on living your best life called The Model Health Show. Before we get into this episode and talk all about sleep hacks and entrepreneurship, I wanna remind you that my 2019 mastermind is starting to fill up in terms of the applications rolling in. Now, I have not started doing pre-qualification calls yet, but remember, I'm taking them on a first-come, first-serve basis. So get your application in line. I do go through them all. I look for the best fit, and then I set up a phone call to see if it's a great fit between you, me, and our existing group. So if you're interested at all, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash masterminds. I think the mastermind is the fastest way I know of to 10X your business, to up-level your tribe. We are the average of our five friends and get a clear path to grow your business and your relationship to the next level. It's a significant shortcut. So look at it this way. What if by this time next year, your profits 10X'd in your business? You spent less time working there and had more time with your family and your friends to do the things that light you up. What if you did it with some of the highest level entrepreneurs on the planet? And what if you learned all of this while you were experiencing some of the most amazing adventures, places, and cities in the world? Stop the what ifs. Choose, make a choice, make a decision to make this happen. Go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind, fill out the application. So what's it look like in the mastermind? I put you into a group of high level achievers where everybody is at your level or higher. You'll be in three different masterminds throughout the year, going to three different locations and being a part of what I call experiential learning environments I learned best by doing cool things with cool people and not in the back of a holiday in conference room so I redesigned the entire mastermind concept and made it fully immersive and made the long conference room tables with the mints and the water disappear they're gone so who's it for any upper six-figure earner that is at $300,000 or above or those that have just barely squeaked over their first million and are looking to learn how to get past the multiple seven-figure range year after year. So even if you're just curious, go to hard, hard com forward slash mastermind and click apply and do not let that negative self-chatter get in the way. All right. Now, let's talk about Sean Stevenson because he is about to rock your freaking world. Sean is the author of the international bestseller Sleep Smarter and the creator of The Model Health Show. He's featured as the number one health podcast on iTunes with millions of listener downloads each year. He is a graduate of the University of Missouri at St. Louis. And I was first introduced to Sean's work from my friend Lewis Howes. And he was telling me about how much knowledge he has in the area of sleep, and nutrition and that I have to have him on the show so I do everything Lewis tells me he came on the show and he did not disappoint we talked about ways that you can sleep better how he has put more play into his life with an insane keynote speaking schedule and he's overcome some really dark periods in in his life and we talk about that you can find Sean on the socials at Sean model be sure to take a screenshot of this episode share it on the socials and remember to tag me and at Sean Model and let us know what you, what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Sean Stevenson. Sean, welcome to the
1: show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know what, man? I have been looking forward to this for some time. I was in Mykonos, Greece last week with uh, Lewis Howes, a mutual friend. And we were talking sleep and nutrition. We're sitting in the pool having a couple of cocktails. Me, not him. He doesn't drink. And your name came up.
1: And now here we are. That's that's how the universe works. I love that. That's <laughs> profound.
0: It's absolutely crazy. So thank you for making the time. And I thought what we would do today is we'd cover a little bit about your backgrounds, um, talk about sleep, which is an area that you know really well and then wrap up with some rapid
1: fire questions so people can kind of get to know you a little bit. Is that cool? That sounds outstanding. And by the way, that setup with you and Lewis and, and Greece, that that's just a beautiful scene right there. So <laughs> that's really cool.
0: It was awesome. It was really, really awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I thought we would start up with how you grew up. Can you unpack the story of growing up with the first half of your childhood in a quiet suburban neighborhood with a lot of love, a lot of attention, and then the second half of your childhood in some of the most dangerous parts of the inner city, surrounded by gangs and drugs and alcohol and violence. I think that's a good jumping off point.
1: Sure. You know, I was just having this conversation with my little brother uh, not too long ago. Because for him, I, I'm about five years older than him. And so when he was born, he was just kind of born into the conditions that we were in with my mother and stepfather. But prior to that, and even a couple of years while he was born and living with them, I lived with my grandmother. And she lived in this really nice, just kind of quiet neighborhood. I had friends who I played with. You know, I went to school a block away. You know, I would have a little picnic after school with my little cousin, Candy, And we would, you know, save a little bit of our lunch and just kind of hide behind some little shrubs and just camp. Like, it was just a really nice life I was made. My grandma kind of made a big deal out of me. You know, birthdays were very special, holidays. You know, I remember very distinctly, you know, like Easter and her setting up a treasure hunt for me and like putting these little clues everywhere. And like all of that was for me, you know, and it just made me feel... Like Life was an adventure. And she also instilled in me this kind of passion for learning. Like I I remember also just sitting down at my little table and having this Garfield notepad where I learned how to write. And I just loved writing. I loved being able to say, to write words that I was thinking, you know? And so it was really, I, I, I developed this very strong sense, which I didn't know this or analyze this until later in life, but a strong sense of, of self. I had a very strong sense of certainty. I know what I knew what life was going to look like and I felt safe. Now, cut to and by the way, there's a parallel part to this as well, because I'm a biracial man. And in this neighborhood, it was predominantly white. And so my kid that my school that I went to was probably ninety percent white kids. And this is like so this you know, is in the
0: quiet suburban neighborhood, right?
1: And this is like the mid '80s, you know. So it wasn't all the way kind of cool yet. Like I really didn't exactly fit in. I didn't know that I was different. Sorry to interrupt. What state was it? Oh, this is Missouri. So it's the same Missouri. as okay, Missouri. And so I I know that I'm different, but I didn't know how, why I was different. If let me put it like that. And so, cut to uh, my grandma and my grandfather. They decide to move back to kind of where he grew up, which is Piedmont, Missouri, which is like the boot hills in the country, like four hours away. And now I'm going to live with my my mother. And it's a complete culture shock. Like it's a total, and I would go over there for some weekends, but even still, man, like there's a time I was in second grade and I came back home to my grandmother's house after spending the weekend with my mom. And I had this, uh, a blood, like a slice in my eye, like a blood clot because my mom uh she, she whooped me with a plastic uh wiffle ball bat and she accidentally hit me in my eye and so I remember the first time my I was told like to i had to lie and say that you know I had fallen or something like that and I remember my teacher asking me and I told her that lie and it's and man it's kind of hard to talk about but when this happened it really kind of something took place in my psyche where I had to decide whether or not I enjoyed that feeling of lying. And I knew very clearly that I didn't. And so now it's a complete culture shock the other way. So now I'm in 95, 99% black school and I'm different again, you know? And so I have to find out how I can fit into this situation now. And just to kind of wrap this whole story up, you know, all of the experience of where I came from and these two very different conditions, I'm so grateful for because they gave me this perspective that the majority of people on the planet don't have. When I began to like get into high school and and, and in college, I kind of rejected the fact that I came from these two different places and that I had this sense of kind of being torn in two different worlds. I didn't like it at all. Now it's one of the greatest things about me. I'm so grateful. And so that's kind of just a little bit of my experience. Uh, But through it all, I maintained a sense of like a desire to want to learn. I maintained a sense of of artistry and wanting to kind of perform. I kind of had that in me. And uh, also a love of writing. So cut to you know today and having written a couple of books.
0: So I'm gonna ask you a question that's gonna be a, probably a weird question. And um, if it's insulting in any way, just, just tell me, cause I don't mean it to be. But you mentioned biracial. And I always wondered if you're biracial, you know, I'm a white dude from New York. So I know what it feels like to be a white dude from New York, but I can't imagine what it's like to be biracial. Do you feel more white or do you feel more
1: black or do you just feel biracial? Mm -hmm. You know, um, this is a great question, man. and, And there's no offense at all. You know, this is my reality. And I could tell you consistently for most folks who are biracial, they're going to Uh, align themselves with one culture or, or the other. And this is simply because of the matter of the conditions that you're in for all of us, you know, we're, even though we might think that we're not segregated, we really are, you know, just the way our culture is kind of set up. A lot of black folks tend to just hang out with black folks. A lot of Asian folks, they have their community, you know, Jewish folks have their community and so on and so forth. And that's Okay. But what we want to really talk about is more integration of these cultures and communication, you know, because we're not trying to just have the whole world to be, you know, blended together necessarily. But uh, at the end of the day, so yeah, for me, myself personally, the vast majority of my life was growing up in African-American community. So that's how I identify myself if I was to be put on a either or track, you know, just because that's been my culture. Uh, However, I'm very clear on the fact, I do not deny at all the fact that, you know, half of me, well, I'm kind of a little bit of a melting pot, is white, you know, for the, we'll say like two fifths is white. You know, I'm very, very clear on that. And I embrace that as well, because it's not just an idea. It was also a, a physical experience of my culture as well.
0: Got it. You mentioned also that you were diagnosed with a condition that affected the bones. So can you walk us through the story of being diagnosed with DJD, uh, degenerative uh, joint disease around 20? And if if I understand correctly, you had an issue with L4, L5, where the discs were herniated, you had some severe sciatica, but then you had a 180 in your health what were the steps that allowed that transformation and maybe you can sort of unpack that story a bit
1: yeah man i mean um at the time you know especially when you're like in that in that age bracket like life is just like you think you're going to live forever you know like life is just so, there's so much opportunity and things are just kind of there's so much opportunity and possibility and for me all of it just kind of came crashing down instantly you know when i went in my physician, because I was having this continuous leg pain, but it wasn't jarring. It wasn't that bad. It's just like, I thought something was wrong with the muscle or my hamstring or something. I was so disconnected on how my body works. And so I went in, I saw the physician and he sent me to get an MRI. And I thought it was so weird. Like the problems in my leg, like, why are we looking at my back? And ultimately, you know, the MRI came back. He put it up for me to see. And you know, he gave me the news and I was just like, naively, I'm just like, okay, so how do we fix this? Right. I see, I have these two herniated discs. What do we do? Because, and this was my mentality also, you know, being an athlete, you know, just like the, I would go to the coach or the trainer or a physical therapist, like just get me back, get me back. Right. And he was like, whoa, there's, this is not something that we can fix. You know, this is something that you have a, you have a condition that you're going to have to, to deal with, son, I'm sorry. And my brain couldn't even register, like, how is that even possible? And so I actually asked him again. And he kind of like looked at me with like a kind of a sad, like, but slash irritated look. Just like, listen, son, there's nothing you can do about this. This is incurable. And what we can do is we can help you to manage this. We're going to get you some medication. And ultimately, of course, like I ended up getting a back brace and, you know, he just said he was sorry. You know, we'll keep our eye on things. And so I came in optimistic about life and possibility. When I left that office, I had been hit with something called a nocebo effect. And everybody's heard of the placebo effect. But I don't think people really realize placebo. So this this is a fake drug or a, a sham surgery where one, the one the test subject believes that they're taking a drug. Maybe it's for lowering their blood pressure or maybe it's for... Uh, chemotherapy, or maybe it's for uh, changing their cholesterol, but it's not a real drug. It's actually just uh, a placebo, which is oftentimes it may be a sugar pill of some sort, or even I've intravenous fluids are given, or they can do fake surgeries. They'll put up a, a fake surgery on the screen, you know, because they'll play uh, somebody else's surgery, and somebody just believes it's happening, and then they will proceed. Here's the here's the crazy part, man. I want people to get this: placebos. On average, in clinical trials, placebos, fake drugs, fake surgeries are 33% effective. It's crazy. 33% effective on average just by somebody believing that I'm taking a drug that's gonna lower my blood pressure. It lowers their blood pressure. Well, let's, let's, let's stop right there. What does that mean to
0: you from, from a belief perspective? Like, how do you process that?
1: I mean, this is a huge, first of all, I think it's important for us to understand that. The most powerful pharmacy in the world is the human mind. You know, you've got a built-in pharmacy that is incredibly powerful. And even when we're taking these exogenous drugs, they're just interacting with our own chemistry. We've got so many, we've got an opioid system in our bodies. We've got uh, systems for regular, you know, we could, we've got a system that can literally turn you on and add to your strength instantly and your energy, you know, the stress modulation, modulation system. You know, cortisol is a big word now, but cortisol really helps you to get up and get get going. It can make you stronger, you know? So all of this stuff is within us. We just need the right trigger in a sense. And so we can produce these changes, but oftentimes we're so bought into the conditions that we're in, we don't realize how powerful we are and how powerful our minds are. Now, with that said, placebos tend to be a positive injunction, right? Like we're going to take this is going to make you better. The opposite is is a nocebo effect. This is when you get a negative injunction that something bad is going to happen when you take this or this situation. And so he told me that this is incurable. There's nothing you can do about it. And because he was an authority figure, I believed him. And every cell in my body was listening to that chemistry change in my brain. And so I went from coming in from kind of a nuisance of a pain to about six weeks later, I'm in chronic debilitating pain, like the worst pain imaginable. Like, and I'm I'm a I'm, I'm, i am i am would consider myself to be pretty tough, you know. My wife might argue with that, as far as you know, just kind of whining to her. But she's the only person I might share something with, all right? <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> she could she could talk to mine. At the time, what would happen is I'd get this every time I would get up from a sitting position or laying position when I would stand up. Every single time, I would have to get this electric jolt that shoots down my, the back of my leg, uh, through my lower back, my butt, the back of my leg, just one side. And it was so strong that it would make me physically jerk. Like I would move and I would try to not move when it would happen. But, and I would stand up and I would walk really slow, just like, okay, it's going to happen and i had have to let it happen before I can go into a full gait of walking. And so I was literally in fear of standing up, you know, and this is kind of, it can be like a metaphysical thing too, but that experience, man, of having been told that this is incurable, nothing, nothing can be done and believing it changed my biochemistry. And ultimately to, to bring the good side of the story back, it did take about two and a half years um, of this belief of gaining 50 pounds now at this point, and I was an athlete prior to this, of depression, of just kind of really being lost and losing a sense of self and a sense of value because I was so different from how I used to be. But ultimately all of it changed. The moment when, and this was, this kind of couples back, funny enough, I was thinking about my grandmother when this all changed because she was calling me, she's kind of harassing me like a grandparent would do. Always checking in on me. I was like, I'm fine, Grandma. But she knew I wasn't fine, you know? And it came to me how she put so much faith and trust and high hopes into me. She knew that I was gonna be special and do something special with my life. And here I was in my college apartment. Now I just have three credit hours because I keep dropping classes. I'm struggling in school, my health is just in the toilet. I'm lost, I I have no sense of really confidence that I once had, and I'm just a shell of what I could be. And it just hit me like, I'm either going to live the rest of my life like this, if, if that, you know, life just didn't seem to be as important anymore, or I'm gonna do something about it. I have two choices here, because my physicians are telling me they can't do anything for me. So either I'm gonna do something, or I'm just gonna quit. And so I decided, I decided to get well. I decided no matter what, I'm going to get better. And most people actually never do that. They never make a decision. And people even listening right now, they might think, well, of course I've decided I didn't want to lose weight or whatever. Nah, it's not a real decision. It's wishful thinking or a try. Like I'll try, I'll see what'll happen. I hope this works. We don't realize that we're not actually making a decision because you know we're starting to do stuff, we're doing activity or whatever, but the real decision, when we actually make a decision, nothing can stop us. Everybody listening has made a decision in something before. That's when you burn the boat, like I'm done. No more this is gonna happen or I'm doing this. No matter what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen. But a lot of times the decision doesn't happen until our backs are against the wall. And so for me, I decided to get well. And come what may, I'm gonna do it. And that was really kind of setting the course for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, for sure. The word decision I once heard comes from the Latin word incision, which means to cut off from all options. So a true decision is what you're describing. Exactly. Yeah. From uh,
1: day meaning from and kaidir which means to cut. So you're cutting away the possibility of any other option in life, except that thing you decide on, you know, and that's, it's powerful.
0: Now you're getting fancy. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I don't even, I didn't even know that. That's cool. How do you apply that towards, you know, let's say goal setting in your life? Because you know, if somebody says you can't do something, well, then your, your blood, your, your biochemistry is going to change and it's going to align with you can't do it. So, you know, having this nocebo experience, does that manifest in other areas of your lives, of your life? Like if you're, if you're goal setting or something like that?
1: Absolutely. And the greatest implanter of nocebos is, is ourselves you know, in our own belief systems, you know, we could talk ourselves into believing negative things quicker than anything, you know? So it's really kind of, um, having that breakthrough of awareness of how we can program our own thinking in in the context of goal setting, for example, oftentimes when we're setting goals, it's the same thing. It's very tertiary. It's very like fringe kind of like possibility. Maybe this can happen. Instead of being very clear and direct on what exactly the goal is and really meaning it, this is going to happen. And coming from that perspective, when you write down the goal, you know, there's science behind goal setting. You know, even writing down the goal can increase your chance of actually achieving the goal over 15 to 20% greater achievement in goals that are actually just written down. Because you're taking one physical action towards that goal in a, in a certain way. So that's one thing. But also in the context of maintaining a sense of, of certainty with the goal, we can't leave it up to chance anymore. So when I made a decision to get well, it wasn't just the clouds part and I ride off into the sunset on a unicorn. That's not how stuff really works. It was, okay, I made this this decision. Now I have to put a plan together, all right? And I also have to be Willing to be flexible with the plan itself, but the end destination cannot change. That's the thing. Because my first step in getting to the destination was to drink Slim Fast shakes. All right. That didn't get me the result. You know, the commercial was like uh one for breakfast, one for lunch, and a sensible dinner, right? And so I'm Guy drinking. Was just
0: gonna say a sensible dinner, I remember it.
1: I'm drinking this strawberry shit shake it's not even slim fast it just is so nasty and i'm like this is but very quickly i realized like okay this isn't going to get me where i need to be there's something not right here and ultimately that led me to asking better questions as well so with the goal setting itself comes plan like don't just write the goal what are what are five things that you can do to actually have this happen right let's put that together and from there that's where the execution comes in. You know, as my, as my friend Eric Thomas says, execution is worshipped. You know, anybody can set goals. Anybody can put a plan together, but you have to execute. You know, and, and we are so powerful to affect change in our lives. If we get clear on what we want and then we get clear on some action steps to get there, you will be closer than you know before you know it.
0: You've done a lot of work on sleep. I wanna take a right turn and talk a little bit about um, a subject that it's interesting to me how this is coming up in the lexicon these days from you know people like yourself and Arianne Huffington. Joe Rogan just had somebody on his show. Uh, they did three hours on sleep and it, it's a conversation that just keeps coming up more and more. So what I'd love to know is what was the trigger for you to take such a vertical dive into the subject of sleep. I think there's there's maybe
1: a story of you falling asleep in a casino. Is that right? Yeah. Oh man. You know, this was something that just wasn't really on my radar as something that even mattered. You know, when I was uh just prior to me getting that diagnosis and and starting to experience that pain, I was working uh I was in college. I was working at a casino while I was in college doing it was, I was in a, a department called hard count. And so this is the department that, call, that counts all of the hard coins. Basically, you go and gather buckets from every, from every machine in the casino, put them into these giant vats, process the money to get rolled up, all right? Being that it was in college, and being, in, being the fact that I had no respect or even concern about sleep, I would go out to a club because I had to be at the casino for work starting at like three 3.30 in the morning or 4 o'clock a.m., all right, and I would leave the club, maybe sometimes, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning and drive straight to the casino, you know, and on this particular day, that's what I did, and I drove right to the casino. We started working. We started pulling some of those machines, uh, the, the buckets of coins, and we've got this big, like I said, like a trailer, like a little train, that we put the money into, a little choo-choo train that you could attach more and more of these sections. And I was just sitting next, I would put my hand on one of the 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 cars, the cars that that contained all the money. And I just leaned over, I closed my eyes. I was just like, I just closed my eyes just for just for 10 seconds. You know, I was just close my eyes. And I was gone. And I'll tell you, man, there is nothing like falling asleep in the middle of a casino because all of the Like all of that stuff starts to play in your, in your mind. I didn't know when I woke up, I was like scared to death. Like I thought that I had died. And so I'm like flipping out, you know, my heart's racing. And I realized like, man, like, this is not cool. Like I I can't keep doing this. Like this is dangerous, you know? So anyways, uh, cut to why did this become my path? And I'm very, very, just very, very grateful to be able to, to say this. And to have experienced but you know, my book Sleep Smarter is the most reviewed, highest rated sleep wellness book that's ever been released, and it's translated now. I think it's like twenty countries, hundred thousand copies sold of you know uh, with the audio, and, uh, and and here in the U.S. and just like it's just crazy, man. It's really crazy, but it came around at a very important time. The reason that I made that something I focused on with myself with my career path as a nutritionist is I was not seeing the results with, with a certain percentage of patients that I was seeing with others. You know, so for example, we would have maybe at the time 70% reversal rate for folks with type two diabetes. You know, if they're on metformin and insulin and these things, about 70% of the time we can work along with their physician and get them off their medication and get their blood sugar stable naturally. So in essence, they no longer have the condition, right? It's kind of in remission in a way but there was this 30% that always bothered me and and I was just like are they lying to me what are they doing what? and I it ironically would keep me up at night sometimes just thinking about why can't we get these people's numbers together and so it finally hit me one day to ask them about their sleep and to ask them about their lifestyle and their work and their stress and all these other things and maybe you know this was maybe I don't know 7 years ago and when I started to ask these patients about their sleep, like it, it literally, like I, my jaw was just, I had to hold my jaw up with my hand because it would just would have been on my desk when people tell me their stories and their struggles with sleep. And so what I set out to do from there was, and here's the truth that a lot of us don't want to really accept. We don't like change very much. You know, we kind of want to do the same things that we're doing, but just have like stuff to be a little bit better. You know, as we go along, or if we want, to, if we have to change for something that we really need, we don't want the be the change to be too too dramatic. And so, instead of having these patients turn their world upside down to start sleeping better, I dove into the research to find some clinically proven things that they can do that won't require them to change their life a lot. And I I could not believe what I found, man. And it just it shocked me how much this how much information there was. That wasn't being talked about. This wasn't stuff I learned in in a university setting. None of this stuff, you know, even some of the false teachings. Like, for example, melatonin. Everybody uh, has heard of melatonin being this kind of glorified sleep hormone, but it's really not that. It helps to regulate our circadian uh, timing system in a way. We do need, require darkness and a consistent cycle for us to produce optimal melatonin. But here's what's crazy: in school, I was taught. Melatonin is produced by your pineal gland. End of story. But that's not true. All right, It is produced by your pineal gland, but there's 400 times more melatonin in your gut than in your pineal gland in your brain.
0: So it's, pro- it's produced by the pineal gland in the brain, but winds up
1: in the gut or both. both? Both. So we have cells that can also produce melatonin outside. Because here's the thing. You can... Have a, a, your pineal gland removed, which is a pinealectomy, which I don't recommend. All right, I'm not saying, but when they do that, the levels of melatonin still remain relatively consistent, you know, which is just fascinating. The body finds a way, you know? And so, with that said, how important, because we think sleep is like in our head, how important is regulating what's happening in our microbiome to having better sleep? And so, all of this stuff, man. What I did was I started implementing it with the patients, and man, boom! Immediately, within a matter of weeks, I saw a bump up of about eighty percent reversal rate. When we're just talking about type two diabetes, we're not talking about folks coming in with cholesterol issues and, and issues. You know, they're on their statins, or folks with you know heart disease and high blood pressure, and they're on Lisinopril and all this different stuff. We saw it across the board, but for folks with diabetes, boom! Jumped up ten percent immediately with folks being able to get off their medications. Finally, people who've, you know, coming in for weight loss, they've been struggling for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to try, you know, to to finally lose weight and keep it off. Now we're seeing the results. Now it's like the floodgates opened. And all of that brought me back to my story. When I said earlier about part of the process with goal setting is asking better questions, I simply asked, what is my spine made of? That's an important question if I want to regenerate my spine and my bone density. And that led me on this whole beautiful journey of, it wasn't just calcium, which is what's in marketing, but magnesium, you know, phosphorus, vitamin D, vitamin K2, all these different things that I wasn't really taught in my university classes. Sulfur-bearing amino acids and all this other stuff. And so I started to seek out, first of all, I went supplement route, but then I started to seek out the foods I had these things in. But also I realized that part of the process of healing was sleeping better because my greatest struggle through that entire two and a half years of pain was sleeping at night. I took my uh, prescription medication and over-the-counter medications to basically knock me out because that pain, if, I, if I even change position sometimes, I get that sciatic pain, and it would wake me up. And so I really was just getting pseudo-sleep. I wasn't really sleeping. But when I changed what I was doing during the day, with my lifestyle, my movement practices, my nutrition, I started sleeping better. And when I started sleeping better, I got better so quickly to the degree that moment of decision that I had, six weeks later, I had lost about 28 pounds. About nine months later, I got a scan done. And I just got a scan done about a month ago now. My spine and my, uh, my physician's just looking at it like, man, your discs are beautiful. Who says that? you know, there's just this light shining right through. Whereas there was just, it was darkness. They were paper thin, you know, not paper thin, but, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, like uh, a fruit roll up thin. All right. And so my two herniated discs had retracted on their own and I had this suppleness back to my disc. It wasn't to the point where it is today. So in essence, I had somehow kind of reversed the aging process. I went from an 80 year old spine to you know, 40 year old spine to 30 to, you know, and now, you know, having a chronological age versus, you know, the biological age, my body being physically younger than my chronological age now, you know, and this is stuff we can monitor, we can check out. But bottom line is this, if you're not sleeping well, you're not healing. And last little thing I want to share about that is, it's because during sleep is when we produce the vast majority of these anabolic hormones, um, namely human growth hormone, and testosterone is directly linked to your sleep. When you wake up out of sleep, testosterone begins to go down. When you go back to sleep, testosterone begins to go up. It's one of the very specific, distinct things that we see clinically tied to your sleep. In fact, study done recently, and they took, these are college-aged males, and they sleep-deprived them for It was either 10 days or or two weeks. And I did a whole episode of my show about this. It's been a while. It was either 10 days or two weeks. Sleep deprived them, so they're only getting five hours of sleep. Here's what happened. Over the course of that time, their testosterone dropped 15%. Now that might not sound like a lot, but these are college age guys. That's as if they were suddenly 10 or 15 years older. All right, just Mm -hmm. by being sleep deprived for that amount of time. All right, the great news is we can fix it. I put it all together in this book and uh, found 21 clinically proven ways that we can optimize our sleep quality because it's not necessarily about how many hours of sleep you're getting. It's the quality of those hours that that matters a lot.
0: So let's unpack that just a little bit more. How should people approach sleeping smarter versus say just sleeping more?
1: I think the first place to, to look is understanding a little bit about what sleep is. The smartest people on planet Earth have a really tough time trying to describe sleep. It's just very weird, all right? It's kind of like, it's like you're, it's like you're kind of dead, you know? It's this really strange phenomenon that we're doing. Yeah, it's
0: creepy. Got that beta, delta, REM, and your eyes are flickering. It's like you're dead with flickery eyes. It it's is. a weird it's so thing. so
1: weird. And you would think that we would have evolved out of it. Because you would think that this is a very hyper-vulnerable position to be in. And humans actually sleep significantly longer than a lot of other mammals. And this is because of our brain. You know, Our brain is one of the most miraculous um, creations in, in the universe. And this is so real. And why this matters in, in sleep, it, as far as sleep is concerned, is that during sleep is one of the times where there's a process... I think everybody's maybe heard of their lymphatic system. And your lymphatic system is kind of like extracellular waste management system for our bodies. But there's a blood-brain barrier. So the lymphatic system doesn't necessarily operate with the brain. So how does your brain remove toxins? Because your brain is so active. It's using about 25% of your calories for this small organ. And there's a lot of metabolic waste products and we need to get rid of this stuff so that we can make room for new cells, new growth, new development. And so there's this cleaning process that takes place. And this cleaning process, is, it goes on all the time, but during sleep, it's 10 times more active. This glymphatic system is the name that has been given. So it's sort of like lymphatic, but it's glymphatic because it's run by glial cells in the brain. And here's the issue. What we're finding today is that conditions like Alzheimer's appears to be linked to the brain's inability to detoxify itself all right, we're seeing this buildup in metabolic waste products. Guess what? Sleep is where your brain really does the, the house cleaning. This is why that vulnerable state that we have not evolved out of is so valuable. If we're going to have this miraculous organ with all the incredible things that it can do and create for us, we have to sleep in order for it to function properly. All right, so that's one big thing. When, when it really boils down to it, and this is the last thing I'm going to say with this, I think that it's Hyper undervalued simply because we haven't really talked about what it is, and so just going back to you know it kind of like being like we're practicing being dead. What's really happening? How we define sleep clinically is simply a change in your brain waves. It indicates a change in your consciousness. All right, so right now as we're all awake together, we're in beta brainwave state. So they're this faster, and sometimes some gamma can jump in there as well. And then as we start to transition to sleep or even just a state of relaxation and maybe a state of really deep focus, we start to move into alpha brain waves. Then from there, we move into theta. And then ultimately, delta is that kind of deep, dreamless, non-REM sleep. It's the most anabolic stage that you can be in. That's like getting hooked into, that's like getting plugged into the Captain America sh- machine. Like when he goes in as the skinny guy and then he comes out, you know, Captain America. We've got a little virtual teeny little, it's not the same. You're not going to obviously, you know, start, I don't know, punching trucks with your fists or whatever, but you will kind of plug in and you start to get, produce all these anabolic hormones, namely human growth hormone, which is also known as the youth hormone. Kids have so much HGH. This is why they have so much energy, you know? And so um, that's correlated with your energy. So people would come into my clinic all the time like, Sean, what can I take for my energy? What can I take? What can I take? And just like this allopathic thinking, like a pill is going to help you or a supplement. And I went down that route myself. The number one thing that's going to give you more energy is sleep. And we're just trying to treat it with a band-aid because sleep is so undervalued. And so what sleep really is, is cycling through these stages and all of them are valuable. Non-REM sleep and REM sleep too. So REM sleep, that's the rapid eye movement you talked about. Here's something cool that happens during REM sleep something called memory processing takes place, predominantly during REM sleep. That's where stuff like people are learning right now, this information gets converted to your short-term memory. Right? So this starts to get filed away and become more of a permanent fixture in your, in your brain, in your tissues, by you getting REM sleep. And so if your REM sleep is being hampered for some reason, which one of those ways, funny enough, is drinking alcohol close to bed, there's something called a rim rebound effect that takes place. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you or if anybody listening It's probably never happened to anybody listening. You know, we're, we're, we're all, we're all good. But some people, sometimes you could drink a lot. You could drink so much that you don't remember what happened. Now, I'm not saying this has ever happened to me. I'm not saying this has ever happened to anybody listening, but so, somebody, you know, it might be you. Somebody, you know, has done this before. It's in some book somewhere. Yeah. It's like they made a movie about it. It's like a joke Yeah. Or But what happened was, because of this REM rebound effect, alcohol has a direct influence on suppressing REM sleep. And so whatever took place, they literally couldn't process the data and file it away in the short-term memory. So they don't remember what happened, you know? And so it's a really interesting phenomenon that takes place. And also this is kind of the whole experience of the quote, a, a hangover is because of the brain's hampered inability to detoxify itself. You know, and also, you know, of course, the liver and all that stuff as well, but I'm not saying don't drink. what I'm saying is if we have some strategies in play so that we can drink, you know enjoy your wine or your you know your your vodka, whatever you're into, but it's just where you space things, giving your body time to process the the alcohol a little bit better, making sure you're hydrated, you know getting some water in because nature's solution to pollution is dilution, right, and so having that water can help dilute and process it faster. Um, the amount that you're drinking based on your, your body weight to try to get to that head change you're looking for, but without causing problems with your sleep. And I put tips for all of that stuff in the book so that you can still have your life and enjoy your life, but also get great sleep because at the end of the day, that's what's going to transform your body.
0: So your life right now, as it relates to sleep, I mean, you're, you're married with kids, right? Yes. Okay, so you're on a routine like most of us are you know the, the well I'm sure your kids are a little bit older now, but you know for the for the guy that's you know the the guy, the girl that's got a routine, you know the kid come comes home from school, they do the homework, they put him in the bath, they get it ready. Most people, if you ask them what time they go to sleep, it's usually pretty pretty much on the same time, you know let's say ten thirty or they watch the news if anybody does that anymore, they go to sleep eleven eleven thirty so how do you recommend somebody change their routine in order to get you know the right amount of sleep? Hey, honey, I'm going to bed now. I need more sleep. Is there any any tricks or tips because a lot of this is just theory until you can put it
1: into action, right? Well, this goes back to just I, finishing I guess the other part of that of what is sleep and looking at going through those different brain cycle like brainwave cycles. What what we really are aiming to do, not necessarily sleeping more, but sleeping better, is to optimize those those cycles. Because I just mentioned alcohol being one that can really tear one up or tear the cycle up. There are other things that can cause problems with our sleep cycle. So a lot of folks, like you just mentioned, they might be going to bed at 10 30, waking up at six thirty, getting eight hours of sleep, but they still feel terrible. They're tired all the time. They're having trouble with the body composition. They're they're not as focused at work, you know, because we could been this whole time just talking about the impact on pr- productivity you know as far as sleep is concerned but the bottom line is this so there are things that can mess up our sleep cycles and there are things that can make it better all right so one of those things and then I'll talk about the routine aspect one of those things that that can immediately help to optimize your sleep cycle clinically proven is to exercise in the morning all right so Appalachian State University did a really fascinating study they sought out to see how exercise timing could potentially affect sleep. They had no idea that it would be this dramatic. So what they did was they took exercisers and had them to exclusively train at 7 a.m. for a period of the study. Then they had them train exclusively at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, exclusively for a time period. Then they had them train exclusively at 7 p.m. in the evening, and then they tracked all the data. And they found that when folks exercise in the morning, they spent more time in the deepest, most anabolic stage of sleep they had more efficient sleep cycles. So they were actually, the quality of their sleep was better. They tended to sleep longer. And they also, and this is something really cool that might be overlooked for some folks, but they, on average, when folks exercise in the morning, they had about a 25% greater drop in blood pressure in the evening. And what that's correlated with is a deactivation of your fight or flight sympathetic nervous system, which is one of the reasons that just kind of keeps people up. Even if you're unconscious, if your stress hormones are too high, cortisol can have an effect on melatonin. It can suppress melatonin if your stress hormones are too high. You know, so getting that bit of morning, and this doesn't mean you can't train in the afternoon or whatever it is for you, but I highly recommend people, and I did an experiment for an entire year in preparation for the book coming out where I, because I've been a morning exerciser for years, but I started training in the early afternoon or like around four with my son, my older son. But I still got that five or 10 minutes in in the morning you know, Because that what it does, exercising in the morning, it does what we call clinically a cortisol reset. So this helps to optimize, because cortisol is not bad. It's just if it's produced at the wrong time and in the wrong amounts. Clinically, we would call people tired and wired. So this would mean they're tired in the morning, but in, at night they're wired. It's like, I'm awake. It's because their cortisol is too high at night and too low in the morning. Your cortisol is supposed to be elevated at its peak in the morning. So the exercise encourages that cortisol production and then it helps to get that back on track with the normal decline as the day goes on. So I hope that makes sense. So bottom line, just get five minutes in. This could be a a quick power yoga session. This could be jumping on a rebounder. This could be going for a quick jog around the block. This could be doing some body weight exercises. Whatever floats your boat, use this because it's going to help to optimize your sleep cycle. And last really quick thing here with this is with the routine itself. What we want to do is understand, you know, if somebody's getting seven hours, six hours, you can get six hours of sleep and feel more recovered, well-rested, energetic than people who are getting nine hours of, of terrible sleep, all right? So keep that in mind, but you have to do what's right for you. It, the success is in the routine.
0: Got it. Two quick rounds I want to do with you, but I have a couple of quick questions—just um, high-level questions I wanted to ask you. Why is your show called the Model Health Show?
1: Uh, it's a great question. Most people ask about me, you know, being a model, whatever. I I did some stuff in college, but it wasn't really that being the reason. But it was this was initially before even the show existed. I had this kind of model from you know Sean Stevenson, you know, and people would like tune into this, not the show but just people that I work with in my clinical practice, you know, they would kind of follow this model that I created, you know, and that evolved into being really a model of what health actually looks like. And so that encompasses so many different things, which your relationships are a huge influence on your health. Your finances are a huge influence on your health. And so with the Model Health Show, we're we're providing a model of what health looks like in a kind of holistic fashion, which the word holistic, I'm not talking about alternative medicine necessarily. I'm talking about that just means whole and looking at all the Mm. different pieces. And so, but there is this kind of outer appearance, you know, if even people see my show icon of like fitness and this, you know, this body and that kind of thing. But when people click play, they realize it's something far bigger than that. But I do have the goods, you know what I'm saying? As far as the physical fitness, we, we do have that, but we also make it attainable, you know, for everybody, because there's a different version of I'm, I'm I'm encouraging other people to create their own model of what as well, and so that's that's kind of the story behind it.
0: Got it. I fell into the camp of uh, every time somebody recommended the show when I saw the the picture of you and I saw the words, I was like, oh, this is a model doing a show about health. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I thought. I didn't. I didn't know. I'm so
1: I'm so bought in now. You know what I'm saying. I'm just I'm riding it out. And uh, yeah, what are
0: you going to do? It's I a mean, pleasant now, surprise when
1: people when people tune in though.
0: Yeah, for sure. How long have you been doing the show now?
1: Uh 5 years and a couple months. One show every week and now we're doing a bonus episode every first Monday, but that's like the number one key when I when I'm telling people is like literally it's just consistency. Most people are going to quit, you know, when they start their podcast. Yeah. And so um but also I have this mandate of every episode working to create a masterclass on that subject matter. You know, whether it's myself doing a solo show or you know, I really strive, I bring on the very best people in the world in their respective field, you know? So if we're talking about emotional intelligence, I have the guy who wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm very passionate about that because I want people to be able to learn from the people that I've learned from.
0: Yeah. You've become quite a celebrity in this world for sure. I mean, you're at the, you're at the top of your game right now. So as a, from one podcaster to, to another, I just want to, I want to give it props because you really do a beautiful job. Oh man, thank you so
1: much. That means a lot. And people see me, you know, I, I share a lot with my family, you know, like on Instagram. This this is a big part of my life. But I want folks to know that, man, I am far I am far from perfect. And far from perfect as um, you know, as a parent. You know, I'm very passionate about it. I love my kids so much. I love them so much. And they know that, you know, like I want them to know whenever they move on to whatever they do that. I, their father loves him immensely. And just yesterday, just to share a little thing, you know, my son, Brayden, he had asked me the day before, you know, if we were going to do something, you know, because he always wants to do something with me after camp or after school. And I told him, you know, tomorrow, because I was working on something. And when tomorrow came and I was like, buddy, you know, I really got to do this and that, you know, he was like, but you said today, you know, yesterday you said today. And it really was just a gut check, you know, because in that moment I could have missed it, but I was putting him off in order to do this other thing, you know, fill in the blank. And so I did end up spending that time with him, but I sacrificed and I ended up being up, you know, an hour later, you know, at night doing the work, you know, I still executed to get the stuff done. You know, sometimes you do have to sacrifice and, you know, I'm not perfect. I kind of, I wasn't honest with my kid and I very pride, pride myself on that honesty. You know, and I, and I had, I didn't do what was most important because if our lives were to end, I would have been most disappointed in the fact that I didn't spend that time with him, you know? And so I've done that. It's happened several times, but I've become a lot more aware of it. And uh, so I guess that's, that's where I'm at, man. I'm just really working on um, being more present, being there for my, for my boys uh, when they need me, especially when I say I'm going to be there.
0: Yeah, I mean, presence is tough, right? You, when especially when you're entrepreneurial like you are, and you have so many different projects, and so many people want a piece of you to do, you know, keynotes, it, it's it, writing books and podcasting, etc. You know, your mind's in fifty thousand different directions. How do you, how do you keep that presence? What's your? Do
1: you have any secrets there? Oh man, that's such a great question. Uh, I I used to, when I first met my my then girlfriend, now my wife, her mother such a big teacher in my life. She, you know, she's a meditation teacher for many years. She's there from Kenya. Mm. And, um, when she, she taught me meditation and I used to for about two over, probably right around two years, I did this meditation every day. Um, it was, um, uh, 30 minute meditation, which is crazy to be able to say that, but it had such a profound impact on me. And then as time evolved And then the family stuff, and that started to integrate, especially with my youngest son, who's six now. I had to change my perception and my approach with meditation. I could get up earlier and still do that same one, but I realized that meditation isn't just this practice of sitting and being still and going within, it's just being present, you know? So I started to, part of it is just enjoying the moment. And so, being with my son it, it could be meditative for me you know like we we can be playing mm. connect 4 and if i just stop all of the thinking about things that i need to get done or you know if i want if you know if i'm hungry or whatever and just look at him listen to his voice and just enjoy this person that i helped to to make you know and to to let him know that he matters you know that's that's become a meditative process so you can bring that sense of mindfulness into everything, and it helps time to expand in this strange way that you can only know once you do it. And so, I think part of it for me is with all these different things is having a meditation practice, and the second part is, man, like I, I, I thank you so much for acknowledging me because, like, a lot of people don't really get it, man. Like, I, I, I have a, I have the show, which is a big, pretty big deal. I'm writing books. I'm, I'm a teacher uh, for an institute. I have an online program. I have this social media presence now that we just started to really focus on. I have a family. I got to take care of my own health. You know, just like, I have a lot of stuff going on. That's not. And I speak and I travel, like all, literally all over the world. I'm able to do this because of what I call chunking. I call it chunking. So each day, for me it's it's by the day. I dedicate to the best of my ability. Like for me today is Friday for us as we're recording this. On Fridays is when I do interviews for for other people. Right? Thursdays is dedicated to my show only. I don't do anything else except maybe some busy work after I'm done. Wednesdays is for writing preparation research. You know like Mondays for writing. So like everything is really chunked to the day so that I could stay hyper-focus and get execute, get that stuff done. And rather than switching and jumping around all day, which results in something called attention residue, and we have facts, we have science to back this up now, it's called a switching cost. And so as we're jumping from task to task, there's a loss that takes place in your ability to get back in kind of that relaxed alpha state to where you're really getting good work done. So today, a lot of us are mistaking being busy for being effective, you know? So that's one other thing is like, I chunk. Even when I travel, man, I used to travel just on the spur, like just boom, I got this thing, I got that thing. Now what I do, and then I end up missing time with my family. Now what I do, I chunk it. So if I go on the road, I'll just go on the road. Instead of just going to one city, coming back, going to another city, I'll just go out. I'll knock out a bunch of things at one time. So I could be on the road, maybe it's 10 days, but then I'll be home for two months. You know what I'm saying? It might be two weeks I'm on the road, but then I could be home, you know, for, for a month and a half, two months. And then I'll do it again, you know? So I found that to really be effective. So I hope that that helps.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so good. That's, um, uh, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about that. He kind of calls it uh, batching. You know, he said, uh, you know, when I do laundry, I don't do laundry every single time I dirty a pair of socks. I let the batch fill up. And then the you know the, the bin fill up and then I do the laundry. So you're kind of doing something very similar there with earmarking days so that you can be fully present, laser focused on those days and do it effectively as opposed to switching tasks like a ping pong ball. Exactly. I love that. Okay, so let's do a, a quick play hard round. This show is called Work Hard, Play Hard. And I'd like to do a little check under the hood and move into the play hard part of your life. Most entrepreneurs are super driven. They don't take the time to play. Now, just for definition, play does not have to be champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez, although it can be. Sometimes it's even sexier to just sit down and read a book that you've always wanted to read. So if you were to add more play into your life, what kind of things would you love to add that you don't have now?
1: Oh man, that's such a good question. Oh my gosh. Uh, what I love to do more than anything is to to be with my wife and and my kids. Her first, let me be clear. All right. So um, just being able to spend more time with her one-on-one, uh, especially with kids. You don't have that as often. And uh, to travel with her more, which we do, you know, like for some events and things like that, she goes with me and then my sons will stay with, my, with their grandmother. Uh, so doing more of that and also traveling with the kids more and just exposing them to more things. Uh that's what if I could, I would add more of that. And I'm just not in a place where right now it's just there's so much going on. Mm -hmm. Uh it would be really difficult for me to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about travel. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, obviously not working, but one month any in the world, anywhere in the world, where would it
1: be and why? Um, you know, I'm I'm in the Midwest right now. Uh I grew up in St. Louis and there's not a lot of people here that are doing things like I'm doing, which is cool. You know, and I feel like I've brought a lot of uh, positive things here, Um, but it would probably be, I mean, just, this just was jumping to mind. It might not sound very sexy, but either on either coast, you know, New York City, which, you know, again, I'm chunking, I'm headed there soon, or, you know, on the West Coast, you know, maybe San Francisco, LA, San Diego, just where my my tribe is, you know, as far as like people that are kind of doing big things. Online specifically, you know, to do some more collabs, to make sure that, you know, like just the, the people that, you know, I have planned up for, for, you know, guests for my show, you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult being where I am. So if I could spend a month, I'd probably just set myself. It's so crazy. I know this doesn't sound like relaxation time, but I want to execute, you know, so I'd go to where uh, a lot of my, my people are. And so I just want to get some massive work done.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something that, uh, that I've been saying the exact same thing for the last few years. And I finally decided that, uh, we're going to uproot the family and we're going to do it. So, uh, we're moving to Manhattan beach, uh, in LA in August so that we can be closer to, to my tribe and, and to more of the people that we're going to have on the show, et cetera. So we can do something live. So, so maybe you can consider it and we could be neighbors.
1: Where are you right now? Atlanta. Oh, the ATL. Yeah. I mean, people do come through there a little bit, but yeah, that would be huge, man. I'm so happy for you.
0: Yeah. I just keep going back and forth to LA and New York that I had to pick one. And I grew up in New York and I just, I want to be in 70 degrees, blue sky, no humidity at the beach. You know, I want to have the lifestyle. That's what I'm after. So we're going to make it happen in August this year. Awesome. Really super excited. When you come to the end of your life and you're lying on your deathbed, what would you regret the most if you didn't do it?
1: I would regret if I died and I didn't know that I had a dramatic like I could see a dramatic change, the connection and compassion between the different folks in our culture. So what I mean is with the races, you know, the race relations, you know the the violence, uh the sense of disconnection, the sense of fear. I want to see a noticeable change. I'm very passionate about this. This is why actually I do what I do. It started off as I just want to help people. You know, I just want to help people to not go through what I did. Them getting the diagnosis and hearing that there's nothing they can do. I want to show them there is something they can do. But now my mission is inspired and driven by the little girl who believes that, you know, she's ugly because she's, she's dark or... You know, people being in fear uh, that you know when their kids go out that because of the color of their skin something might happen and their child won't come home. You know, and this has happened to many people. And we all together we have such a beautiful tapestry and and gifts and value as as cultures. I know that my gift is people don't do well because they don't feel well. If we actually are hurting inside, we're going to be far more likely to to not have compassion and patience for another person. You know, regardless of the race, by the way, this is overall, if I can do my work to the best of my ability and get more people in our world today feeling good and and, and having an optimal function in their own minds so they can be more present, more patient, more compassionate, I think that we can really see a big shift in how we all relate to each other and see a, a big shift in the amount of, of, of hurt and violence and disconnection and not enoughness and really work together for a world that works for all of us. Mm, that was beautiful.
0: Okay, we're gonna move into the rapid fire rounds, which will be the last round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: Making complex things very simple.
0: What's one of the things you're afraid of right now?
1: I'm afraid of having fears. What keeps you up at night? Nothing.
0: What do people never ask you, but you wish they did?
1: Hmm. What you already asked me, what really drives me? What audiobook or book have you listened to the most? There's two. And this is years ago, but I read it multiple times. Think and Grow Rich. Another one is Power Versus Force. Mm.
0: Okay. Haven't heard of that one. Two more. What is the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will?
1: (laughs) Oh man. Just clothes, man. You know, especially I pick up t-shirts everywhere, man. I have so many tees, and I'm just justifying (laughs) like, oh, I'll wear this one day. Just, yeah. Getting rid of these clothes.
0: If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you normally speak about, and it could be really on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or really anything else at all, what would it be?
1: Wow. This goes back to the question earlier is um, finding a way to to love and respect other people, finding a way to love and respect our fellow humans uh, a little bit more. Love that.
0: Okay, last one. You can ask me anything. We could change it up a bit. Is there any one question that you want to ask
1: me? Do you have fear regarding your move that's coming up?
0: Yeah, I do. And the fear that's coming in is the unknown. We've got a uh, three-year-old daughter and she goes to Montessori school here and she's doing exceptionally well and we love it. And we've been in Atlanta now for 25 years. I've always dreamed about living on the West Coast, but I don't know what it will be like to actually live there. Cost of living here in Atlanta is a lot cheaper than living in Southern California. And so my fear is the fantasy that I've made up in my head about what living there is like versus what it's really like. Mm. So I'm just going in on blind faith. Mm. Awesome. But I can let you know when I get there. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: I would say that, you know, just continue to invest in yourself, invest in your, uh, in your humanness, invest in your education in all things, not just the, the one thing that you were, like you said earlier, that you're known for, or that you were interested in. You know, maybe it's health and fitness, or maybe it's business and marketing, uh, but diversify yourself as a human. I think it makes it better for and easier for you to relate to others. And you'd be surprised how how many people buy something from you because they relate to something other than what you're trying to sell them, you know? So uh, just st- try to diversify yourself as a human. And, uh, you know, we've talked a couple of times, my show, Crazy Enough Today, it's featured on the homepage of iTunes for the entire US. Uh, it's called The Model Health Show. Uh, so you can check me out there. Again, we do master classes on all subject matters related to health and fitness. And I promise you, you click play, you're going to be in. I mean, for real. So you can check me out there on the platform you're listening to this on. It's called The Model Health Show. Or you can uh, hit me up in my home online. It's themodelhealthshow.com. All my social media is there. You know, Instagram, all that good stuff. I That's really where I hang out a lot now. And, uh, you know, just share my, my story, my life, a lot on Instagram with the stories and things like that. You'll probably see my family dancing, uh, quite a bit. And, um, you know, we have a good time. So, uh, that, that would be all,
0: you know, every single person that I've spoken to, um, about you has all said the same thing, whether it was Lewis house or Ed Milette or any of the, any of the dozen other people that we know in common, they've all said, he's just a beautiful man. Um, and I, I'm so privileged to have spent this time with you. And I really, really believe that the work you're doing is is God's work right now. So keep doing what you're doing, man. That means everything. I receive that. Thank you. Thank you. You got it, brother. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you.